What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. On this episode of the Wedgecast, I'm hanging out with Bob Mesta. Bob Mesta, the way he wanted to be described, is as Marty's dad. Long story short, Rob Kish, who works with our organization, one of his best buddies growing up, Marty Mesta, his father, happens to be a pretty well-known, influential person. But for us, uh, he's just a phenomenal guy, and he's he's been just a very fantastic mentor to us. But to the outside world, He's the president and CEO of a group called the Rewired Group. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at Northwestern, Harvard, Stanford, MIT. He is the co-author of the Jobs to Be Done Theory, which he dives into this podcast. And he's just a phenomenal guy who has a very out there form of thinking that actually comes down to be incredibly practical. So this episode is pretty phenomenal. Thanks for tuning in. You'll enjoy it. All right, Bob. So... I'm uh, stoked to have you on the podcast. This can be a lot of fun. I'm really, really excited just in general to have you uh, have you on the show. So if you can give a little bit of background, you obviously have an extensive background in a lot of different avenues. So yeah. from your perspective, just where does it start and where is it at now? Yeah, I think I think the, the thing is, is that it starts with uh, the fact that as a kid, um, I, I was uh, I was born actually six weeks early, had a hole in my septum. I was blue for almost six weeks. Uh, they weren't sure whether it was going to heal up or anything, but my frontal lobe never fully developed. And to me, that was one of the greatest gifts I ever got. I ended up having two or three other close head brain injuries and, and I'm dyslexic, so I can't read and I can't write. But what it did is it, 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 it for some reason, I was able to overcompensate in other ways. And so I'm an engineer. Um, I basically barely got into engineering school, but I can see equations in my head and I can see the world through kind of the an engineer's eyes. And so 
for the most part, I've been uh, developing and building new products since uh, I think my first product was I used to go garbage pick a bunch of uh, old hi-fi sets and I'd pull all the speakers <laughs> out and I'd probably have an inventory of four or 500 speakers and I would build custom uh, speakers for, for people. And I did that <laughs> when I was 10, 10, 11, 12 years old. And so I had to learn about all that kind of stuff. So that you you just learned that by tinkering, playing around. Obviously, so, you weren't so spending time reading I, books, so you right, were because I couldn't read. It was like I had to go do stuff. So my mom would literally open the trunk of the Bonneville, and we'd drive around in big trash day, and I just could pick up stuff and start taking it apart. <laughs> so I was one of those kids who took everything apart. Um, I end up I end up uh, going to MSU. I end up uh, having a degree in electrical engineering. I end up meeting a gentleman by the name of Dr. Deming who took me to Japan when I was eighteen, and I learned a whole bunch of different Japanese methods of quality and product development. Um, I, I, uh, end up, uh, learning all these different methods and helping Ford reduce his product development cycle time from, uh, 72 months to 36 months. So I'm like the person on the front line learning all these tools and methods. Um, and then from there, uh, and I probably worked on a couple hundred different systems and products in that area. And then I, uh, end up working in the department of defense. I worked in the consumer packaged goods. I, I worked uh, on NASA. I worked on a whole bunch of different products and basically uh, got a specialty in working on very, very complicated, hard problems. Um, and then- So uh, can, I, can I ask you a quick question on that? Yeah. So like throughout all that, I, I would be hard pressed to believe that you didn't have to do a lot of reading throughout some of that. So how, understanding that oh, like a hacks. lot of those deep- I had, So I had hacks. My thing was I had a whole bunch of workarounds. Like my mom- in, in when I was seven years old, the way she taught me to read was I could see words that were seven letters or longer. And when I look at a page, I can only see the spaces. So what I would do is I'd take and circle in red pen the five largest words on a page. And I'd guess what the hell that page was about. So <laughs> it, I didn't read conventional way. But the fact is, is that, that I became really good at pattern recognition. And so what would happen is I could go through the book two or three times and you have to realize that contextually these words would all go together and I could actually piece together. So as most people would take them, let's say two hours to read a book, I might go through the same book eight or nine times. And as me going through the book eight or nine times, I'd end up with as, as close to knowledge that they would. But I was only worried about going from a D to a B where everybody else was worried about getting an A. Right. C's get degrees, baby. <laughs> right. So, well, so here's the thing. Is what, what, what I learned, though, is that reps is what helps me get learned. And so it's all about actually learning from prototyping and learning from all these different ways of, of kind of, I don't have to be right. I just have to be able to, uh, to make progress in how I think about something. And so, again, that, that, that's a theme that kind of went through my life. Um, so I go back to like in the mid 90s, basically, I did a, a startup where I actually built uh, I was basically a product development house for hire. I did about a thousand products uh, there, everything from uh, uh, mostly food companies and consumer packaged goods. So uh, Kraft, uh, Keebler, Borden, um, you know, uh, Elmer's Glue, um, you know, Haagen-Dazs, uh, uh, like ice cream, just just figuring out how to actually build new products, build new processes, et cetera. Um, I left that and went into the home buildings products industry. I did a startup there. We built that and sold that, and then I got into the private equity side and, and did uh, 25 transactions there, um, and then went into home building, and then basically went back to software, and now I have a small design firm here based in Detroit. I've uh, basically developed and launched over 3,500 new products and services. I've done seven startups. I've invested over uh, 35 different startups. Um, I'm on the I'm at the Christensen Institute, which is a, a think tank in, in um Boston that basically thinks about disruption, disruptive innovation for both uh, healthcare, 
education and kind of uh, uh, third world countries. I uh, teach at uh, both um, an adjunct at Northwestern in, uh, in uh, Chicago, and I teach at MIT in Boston uh, in their uh, startup uh, uh, venture creation uh, programs. So, so when all said and done, you just have tons of free time and you're never thinking about anything and fall asleep I, at I night never easily, I'm sure. That's the only thing. <laughs> I'm always thinking about something. And, and, and the reality is, is like, um, I think one of the things you want to had me talk about was like, what, what drives me? And my thing is, is um, I've learned from some really, really smart people. I'm not sure that I've actually invented or created anything, but my whole thing is, is basically the, what they've taught me, I have the obligation to, to, to kind of pass on. And so you know, in the last four or five years, I've kind of made the passion of like, how do I actually teach and help people learn some of these methods and tools? And um, I'm what I'm learning is that this is not about the theory; it's about the practice. And so, my analogy always is like, if if you know how, if you if you want to learn how to weld, you can you can learn how the piece of equipment works. You can actually learn a little bit of the theory of welding. But the only way you really learn how to weld is to weld. Right. And so, I think that's the same with startups and with uh, innovations. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a set of skills that require you to basically practice over and over and over again. Um, and that, that my dyslexia has actually been the greatest asset I have to making me a great innovator. Not that, not that I wish dyslexia upon anybody, but the fact is, is most people are too worried about being wrong where as a dyslexic, I, I actually have the assumption I'm always wrong <laughs> and how to get right. And so you realize that where if I look at two teams, uh, the team that, that uh, is competing against me, they might make 10 prototypes. Um, the team that I work on will, will end up doing 100, if not 1,000 prototypes wow. and in the same budget. And so we just figure out different ways to learn as fast as we can. And we're more worried about what we don't know than trying to confirm what we do know. Hmm. So um, one of the things that I'm known for is this aspect of what we call jobs to be done. I think that's another place you wanted to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, we want to hear hear a lot about so, hear a lot about the jobs to be done theory. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things out there, and so for me, it was something I did back in the early '90s. But it was like because I couldn't read the reports, and marketers are live in a word world that everything is about wor yeah, words. So easy, fast, fun, um, uh, convenient. All these words are things that marketers will talk about and say that consumers want, and they're things that consumers say they want. But when you but 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 when you don't know what it means, there's actually 57 ways to make something easy, and the reality is, is I only have enough money to make four of them. How do right. I decide which one I do? So what happens is half the time people will try to make all 57 ways uh, easy, and you do none of them well, and you end up never delivering on easy. And so part of it is being able to figure out what that is. And so this method, I instead of going to kind of market research, I went to a different place, realizing that consumers don't know what the future is. Consumers actually don't know what they want. They don't know what's possible. And so I went to criminal and intelligence interrogation methods to figure out how to interrogate consumers about why in the world did they switch from this piece of software to that software or from this, this pack of gum to that pack of gum. Or, you know, and, and the basic premise is nothing is random. Everything is caused. Dig to find the underlying causality. And what you'll realize is you start to see that there's social, emotional, and functional reasons why people do what they do. We are so just a, a quick a quick question on that if you if you don't mind. So basically you know, what I what I'm hearing you kind of explain this out is like a lot of times when you ask people a direct question most of the time not necessarily intentionally but they're not as directly honest as they they actually feel or made a decision based upon that whatever question right. that might be. Exactly. So they they actually they actually make up the lie of why they actually bought it. 
So do you think is is that is that because like so if I were to ask you a direct question and okay the perfect example I were to say hey Bob do you want to invest in my company and you come back and you say oh I'm not you know come get me next round come get me next round the response to that is that just you know are you being kind and not directly saying no I think your company that, that, sucks that's one reason the other part is 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 at some point in time invest the, the notion is what what do you mean by invest and what do sure. I mean by invest might mean two different things right. the question is is that at some point is this an investment that I I have to wait for the return or is this an investment you're trying to convince me to put in like both of us have actually different definitions of investment and so all of a sudden we actually talk by each other and so part of it is to understand the job you're trying to get together as the person raising the money the other one is to understand the job that the investor is trying to do which is in some cases manage the risk or you know what, I'm, I'm playing the lottery and I'd rather be able to get the upside. So help me understand the upside because, you know, if I give you the money, I'm already assuming it's probably going to be gone. Right. And so part of this is is digging way past what they did. So instead of asking me about um, what I've invested in, like what will you invest, will I invest in you? you? You should be asking me, like, tell me about the last three companies you invested in. And then I should tell you the story of Dolly and Blue Bloodhound and, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, House Setter. And it's like, well, what caused you to put money in there, and what 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 was the underlying causality that would that, and what were you expecting out of it, and and what were you hoping to get out of it? What did you get out of it, and 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 ultimately, do you still have the investments or not? And so, hmm. part of it is helping me understand how I make progress in my life through investing, and how you make progress with your company by raising money. Got and it. it seems it seems like it should be straightforward, but what you start to realize is, you know, if you look at why. Um, for example, uh, people buy Salesforce, right? There's two things. One is the 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 head of uh, chief revenue officer buys it, the head of IT buys it, sometimes the CFO buys it, and the reality is is they all have actually different jobs and they have different expectations. And at the same time, the people at the lower level uh, who have to uh, actually implement it, they have they have to be able to sell more with it to fulfill some of the things. And so part of this, as you're designing Salesforce, you actually have to design at multiple planes at different times. Sure. And so, so multiple. What I'm doing most of the time is actually trying to understand how to design better products, and 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 products to me always only work when you're going after what I call a struggling moment. If people don't struggle with something, they will never buy. <laughs> and so, as much as they'll look at your technology and say, "Oh my God, that's so cool! Oh, that's wonderful!" You know, I'd love to try it. Right? That's and, and in my world, I'd just say, "Yeah, that's bullshit." Like, yep. <laughs> like, I'm not going to spend a, a million or $2 million on that premise. Now, if you were to say like, yeah, we struggle getting everybody together. We struggle to get, uh, we struggle to actually understand how, you know, who's a good candidate and not. We basically, we, we end up having to, you know, we bring somebody in and they, they take 14 hours of people's time to do that. So we actually use, you know, man days of time to actually interview. And so the thing is, is how do we actually cut that process down? And boy, we don't have enough candidates and oh, we spend so much money in, um, for example, in flying people in. So as you start to understand the struggles of why they can't get good candidates, it's all of a sudden like, oh, you know what? We could use Wedge as a way to actually help filter it a very different way so we don't actually overinvest in the candidates who don't come. Sure. Right. Exactly. So it's understanding the deeper level of where people actually are having a problem and not only not only actually being able to vocalize that or not vocalize that, but the deeper level of that is hitting them when they actually have the problem. That's right. Well, and I think there's two two aspects. There's the context, which is the problem they have, and then there's the outcome that they're seeking. And so the other part is what I would say is what I've learned is that we end up as engineers uh, or as software people, we end up developing something that's 10 times better than what they need, and it ends up being too complicated. 
Sure. So because we can create this feature, we add it as opposed to how does this feature actually help them make progress? And so I work, uh, so for example, I work with the guys at Basecamp uh, in Chicago. And one of the things that if you ever use Basecamp, you realize it's just incredibly simple because they actually don't listen to their best customers who say they want resource allocation and Gantt charting and all these other things because they realize the number one reason why people use it is because it's simple enough that even, you know, my grandmother can log in and figure it out. Yeah, right, right, right. And so, so that's part of this thing too. So, so I've developed, uh, that's one of 25 different methods and tools that I kind of use to help do uh, innovation. Uh, there was a professor at the Harvard Business School named Clay Christensen who helped me take this method that I built and turn it into a theory. It's now called Jobs Be Done Theory. The name of the book is called Competing Against Luck. And so do you remember the first time you explained uh, what Jobs To Be Done was to me? Do you remember the context? No, I, I do not. You'll have to refresh my Yeah, mind. so I, you I, and I, I had a written... But not that memory. <laughs> it's a, it was all good. Yeah, you and I had originally connected on the phone with Rob a couple times, and then the first time you and I met in person was actually at Rob's wedding. And yeah. you come over to me, and we we chatted for a few minutes, and then somebody walks up, and I made the introduction, and somehow Jobs To Be Done came up. And literally the context, and this was my first time actually hearing you explain it, was... You had a glass of wine. I had a beer. And I think whoever was there, I think it was my buddy Drew. He had a Manhattan or something like that. And basically your context was, okay, let's line the three different things up. Let's look at all of us as different people. And let's say, why did Bob choose a glass of red wine? Why did Matt choose an IPA? Why did Drew choose a Manhattan? Basically, each of these are fulfilling a job for each of us. And that's forever stuck with me as, as like beginning to learn my approach of thinking consumer behavior. I, it was fascinating, especially in such an easy an easy context. So <laughs> the thing is, that, and the way the world works, at least prior, prior to this, was that they would actually say it's your demographics that it caused you to buy it because, you know, you're you're, you know, uh, 25, 26 years old and you're this age and, you, you know, you drink beer that like, okay, this is, this is who you are defines what you buy. And what I would say is that at some point that's actually wrong. Like, like, uh, I'm not an absolute person, but it's like, cause I'm 54 and I'm in this income and I live in this zip code. It does not cause me to buy, you know, this car, right? It's the fact that we, we correlate data and not, we don't actually have causality. And so part of this is, these interviews are about what causes people to buy, what causes people to, to choose something or not choose something, and to truly, really understand that causality. And so um, I believe that the problem we're having is a lot of people are using correlative data to try to develop new products and innovations, and that's where they go wrong because they don't know if, if – so, for example, is trust an input or an output of the way you sell – and so do you have to have trust before somebody will buy or is actually when somebody buys, they trust you? And so all of a sudden you start to realize, is that, well, it correlates and people say, yeah, I, buy, I only buy from people I trust, but how do you create trust in a sales situation? It's a right. very hard thing to figure out. And most people will say like, oh, we got to do botting rapport. And, but you really need to spend the time to understand how to cause these things to enable people to actually make progress. So- that's Love what it. I do, man. <laughs> every day, it. again, I, I it, every time every time we chat, it, it leaves me thinking on way too many different things. Um, <laughs> all right, last last question. This is where, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited for this one. So, the obviously our podcast, our audience, what we're trying to tap into, and you've touched on this a little bit, is basically purpose, passion, calling. Like what keep what gets people out of bed in the morning, and then how 
how do you as a leader, how do you as a culture builder, how do you as somebody who steps in as a consultant with different companies, you know, how do you either hire, retain or create that? And so for you, like a question number one is what gets you out of bed in the yep. morning? Like what gets you fired up? Because every time we talk, you're wired up, cheap plug for the company. But also secondly, like the other, the other part of that is like, you obviously have a great way of inspiring people in the way of just kind of the work that you do throughout it. And so what gets you fired up? And then ultimately, how do you inspire that in other people? So, so this, this really came when I was about 35, I would say that, that for a long time, that was last year, right? What? That was last year, right? 30, yeah, 30, no, I pegged it 36, 37. Yeah, so, so, so uh, when I was 35, like I, I pretty much put my head down um, realizing I had these disabilities. And for the first 35 years of my life, I spent most of my life trying to fix my, fix my problems. Like I can't spell, okay, give me a dictionary. I'm going to memorize every word. I'm going to, and, and the reality is, is like, I was making no progress on any of that stuff. And I was literally just burning myself out trying to fix all my ailments, if you will. And, yeah. and realizing like that was just a, a bad thing. And so I went through a process of just trying to figure out kind of like, what, why am I here? What am I trying to do? And, and there's a couple of things that helped me. One was something called Strength Finders, which, which literally was the first time I had ever thought about like, actually, I'm actually pretty good at some things as opposed to, um, you know, I, I'm bad at these things. And so partly was being able to just have a way to articulate what I'm good at and what I can do. And then also being able to realize what I can't do. Yeah. Um, and, and choosing to say like, how do I go find how do I, how do I was putting myself in situations where I was like, boy, if I take this new career, I do this new thing, it'll help me with my weaknesses as opposed to, boy, if I go do this, I can leverage my strengths. And right. 35 is kind of where I made one of those big jumps. The other thing was, is there was a book that was called, um, what was it called? Uh, the On Purpose Person by Kevin McCarthy. And and the notion is, is that that trying to find my purpose and, and the basic premise is, is that your purpose is actually embedded in your soul and your DNA when you're born and that you've had it the entire time. It's just you have to discover it. And so it takes you through a journey of figuring out kind of like when when were you on purpose? Like when 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 was it where time distorted? Like all of a sudden, like you are, you know, your head's down and you're what they call in flow and you start to realize like, you know, oh, my gosh, it's you know, it's seven hours later and you thought it was 10 minutes. It's like, all right, what was going on? Because those are the moments where you're, you're actually on purpose and go find some of those moments and articulate them and then come back and write a purpose. So my purpose statement, it took me about mm, three years to make it, but it's like, I exist to serve by helping others make the abstract concrete. It's that simple. That's what I do. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Has so, that been refined or did you, was that basically as the so, result so of reading? The best example is I have four children and I helped all of the children. Uh, they all played ice hockey. And as long as it was in the, what they would call the I program, which is the kind of the first couple of years, uh, four to six, four to seven. And it was about learning offsides and it was about learning, you know, kind of uh, different systems and learning how to skate and all that kind of stuff is like, I was on purpose because it was about taking the abstraction of playing the game of hockey and helping them make it very concrete to hear the rules and here's what you got to do and here's how you execute. Yep. But the moment that it became about winning and it became about kind of refining it and getting it to the next level, the fact is, is there are a lot of other people better than I to do that. And so for the most part, I backed off as a coach and was a fan. was a fan. I was not a great fan. Let's be clear. I did yell. At <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's okay. You're just encouraging the rest to do better. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. But, the, but the reality is, is knowing where, where, where I should be and how I should help. It helps me guide the problems that I'm solving. So I'm, 
I'm doing things like um, how do I create a, a way to think about uh, how to eliminate corruption? And so the notion here is if corruption is seen as a, as a, as a product and people are choosing that product to make progress in their life, can I actually design a new way that actually makes uh, to, to, to actually make uh, uh, corruption become the worst alternative? And what we've been doing is trying to make uh, jail the worst alternative, but I actually want to figure out how to actually change it completely. And so I'm taking the abstraction of how do we actually figure out that problem and then turn it into a solution. And then I help people execute, but I know that if I get into execution, I'm, I'm good to build a business to about 20, 30 million, but I usually then turn it over to somebody who can take it to 500 million. Right. Who are much better. And so that's kind of my purpose. I think the other thing that gets me out of bed, which is a very interesting thing, and I've done this just recently, is I've actually picked my death date. <laughs> and you know, I'm not sure it works for a lot of people. And the other part is it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about. But my mom passed away when she was uh, 63. She had uh, retired and she had about uh, four or five months. Um, and then she had colon cancer. And she passed away. And she, she, her mother was in her 80s. And my, my mom believed that she would go and you know, she'd lived for another 20 years and she had all these different things. And literally four months later, she was dead. And so I basically said, like, I don't want that to happen to me. And most people think about time as almost an infinite thing. You wake up every day, you have more time. We, we can do that tomorrow. We can do these other things. And in innovation, we talk about this notion of a time box. We actually limit time in Agile. And we basically say, how do we actually do as much as we can within the time box we have? And so by choosing my death date, which is 3,182 days from now, um, the question is, is what am I going to do with my time that I have left? Anytime I have after that as bonus, but it forces me to truly start to think about very concrete things like four children. I see them once a quarter. If I see them once a quarter and I have 3,182 days left, I will only see my children 36 more times in my life. Wow. That's just, that, that's that, just a scary number. It's that all that changes like, the perspective of everything. That's right. <laughs> all of a sudden you start to realize, okay, or somebody will say, Hey, you know, I got some tickets. You wanted to go to a baseball game. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to go see the Mets and Tigers. Like if we're going to go to a ball game, because look, I, I do a ball game or two a year. That means I got 18 ball games left. I'll, let's get on a plane and we'll go see New York Dodgers. Like I'm not, <laughs> like, I, like if, you, if you want to go spend time together, that's great. Let's just not go to the ball game. But like, Let's, you know, the notion is we, we seem to be fitting shit into our lives. And my thing is, is, is I think we should be way more purposeful in how we choose what we spend our time on and who we spend it with. And ultimately it's not about what you have, it's who you have in your life. And I think that's kind of the thing that gets me out of the, out of my bed, out of the bed in the morning. So my week this morning, my week this week is uh, I got up at 445. I flew to Boston. I taught, um, I did two podcasts. I did a teaching session. Um, I ended up uh, working with two uh, startups on Monday night. I got up at, uh, what, 6.30 in the morning on Tuesday. I ended up doing uh, three more podcasts. I taught two classes. I helped somebody redesign their class. I went to dinner with uh, six different, uh, uh, I'll say, executives, uh, got home at 10, woke up at 3 in the morning, flew home, and then had two teams here in Detroit uh, working with them. And then today I've done what four or five podcasts. So like my thing is I'm filling every moment I can because I just, I, I, I'm very, that sense of urgency is what's most important. What do you put in your coffee in the morning? I don't drink coffee. I drink espresso <laughs> and I drink one in the morning. And that's it? That's it. I'll tell you that I think there's two things that, that really help me. One is I take a nap every day at two o'clock, <laughs> believe it or not. 
I love so take, that. I take a 20, 20, uh, between a 20 and 25 minute nap. And then, um, I, I, um, I have, uh, I'll say I, I experiment a lot with ways and how to sleep in terms of what time, uh, what, 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 uh, supplements I take. I'm listening. Uh, there's a guy named Michael Bruce who spends a lot of time to talk about the, your, your internal, uh, biorhythmic clocks in terms of, how your body, like irrelevant of what you want it to do, this is how your body works. And so I've been listening very hard to understand how my body should be, when to work out, when to go to sleep. Um, like I don't, I don't actually go to sleep until I've used every ounce of energy I can. So I paint. And so after painting, then I basically lay down and I like I, I, my time to sleep is four minutes, five minutes at max. And so I, I don't, you know, I, I get so tight and I wake up every morning full of energy. Wow. Love that. <laughs> I, uh, might, I might, I might have to take some notes on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. Oh. Love life, well, life, I, is, life is wonderful, and the question is, is how do you actually enjoy it as much as you can, and how do you help help as many people as you can? That's so good. Well, yeah, and that, I mean that, that's a great transition. My last question is basically, I want to give you an opportunity if there's any other, uh, any anything else you want to add, or anything you want to leave with the audience, or I guess any final closing words. You know, my my, my thing is is one is. One thing I would say is the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation. So the moment that you struggle or the opportunity to create struggling moments for other people is actually a gift and not a hindrance. And the notion of being, able, especially as a parent, for you to take away struggling moments from your children is actually is worse than a crime because they need to actually learn how to cope with them and they get better because of it. And so as you look through your life, one, help people figure out how to make progress in their life. But at the same time, realize that that the struggle is part of life and that it's a good thing. And it's not life isn't meant to be all perfect. The fact is, is the struggle is the thing that's the direction you should what, what you should be doing next. And so to me, to really think about kind of the way people struggle is a really important aspect, because if if we didn't struggle, we wouldn't need wedge. <laughs> right. I like that. I like that. Cool. Well, that's uh, it's I mean amazing <laughs> everything i was hoping for and more so thank you awesome awesome well if there's any questions uh people can follow me on twitter at b mesta at b m o e s t a i'm on linkedin you can actually uh, follow me there um and for the most part uh, those are the two those are the two i do instagram but that's pretty private so i don't I, there's no reason for anybody to see me smoking <laughs> cigars <laughs> <laughs> all right next podcast we'll do it over a cigar that's perfect all right, that was good. We, we do it, i have a cigar porch so i know i know i know i need to i need to take you up on that <laughs> yeah, good so next time you're in town let me know cool thanks a ton